This podcast is a part of the Podmania Podcasting Network. Check out podmania.co.uk to check out more of our great podcasts, features, reviews, match ratings and previews spanning the crazy and diverse world of professional wrestling. What's up everybody and welcome to another episode of Wrestling with Jonners. This is episode 116 and uh, we've recently done uh, a retro pay-per-view review. We recently reviewed WrestleMania 8 and today we're going to step it up a little bit. We're going to go 12 months further ahead and we're going to look at WrestleMania 9 from 1993. We do have a special guest on Skype to help us review WrestleMania 9 and we'll introduce that uh, very special guest now. I want to introduce uh, Mike Mad Dog Angus TNT ring announcer. So, Mike, thank you for coming on the Wrestling with Jonas podcast. Uh, how are you on this uh, lovely sunny um, spring afternoon? Yeah, wonderful, my friend. Good to speak to you. I'm uh, I'm just uh, on lockdown at the moment, obviously. So I've been doing um, <laughs> I've been doing some homeschooling. My son is just having his lunch break now, so uh, I thought this would be the ideal time to have a little catch up and have a little chat about wrestling for a oh. little bit of time while he's doing a bit of Lego. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there's no better thing to talk about when you've got a bit of downtime, especially when you're in lockdown, to talk about professional wrestling. And especially we're just days out from WrestleMania 36, and that's going to be a bit of a, a strange one. And similar to WrestleMania 9, I suppose it's going to be one of those that sticks out like a sore thumb as being a bit of a, you know, a WrestleMania in the history books that uh, wasn't the norm and, you know, a little bit different. It's going to have no fans, of course. Uh, will you be watching WrestleMania 36 over the two nights, Mike? Yeah, certainly. I'll certainly do my best to watch it. I was uh, meant to be hosting a party for Hooked on Events in uh, in Liverpool, so we were really looking forward to watching it then. And then, obviously, all this stuff that's gone on, it's going to be, uh, as you say, a really different um, WrestleMania, similar to 9-9, obviously, was the toga party. Um, yeah. And then, you know, 36 is going to be remembered because it is going to be different. No fans. Let's see if they can pull it off. And, uh, you know, good on them if they do. And if they don't, it'll give us something else to talk about anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when we first started speaking uh, on Facebook uh, through Messenger, uh, you, you approached me. You mentioned that WrestleMania 9 was one of the first WrestleManias you remember as, as, as a kid growing up. Uh, you know, one of the first shows that kind of drew you in as a fan. But uh, tell us about kind of how your wrestling fandom started started was it around this time mike yeah you know what it was i um I, wrestlemania 10 was the first one i watched live but wrestlemania 9 really um it did catch my eye definitely it looked very visually different with it being outside obviously at uh, caesar's palace in las vegas and um i used to get like magazines from the uh from the little news agents by mine and one of the magazines i picked up was like um i've got it by me now actually randomly it's uh what was it called it was the history of WrestleMania 1 to 9, it was a WrestleMania 10 collector's edition, and it had all sorts of stuff in, and uh, especially the results from the first load of Manias. So yeah. um, that was a, a good one to look through. It had some iconic pictures, and it had you know, the write-up. It was, uh, I think it was Keith Elliott Greenberg who wrote, who wrote this magazine, but it was, um, you know, it's pretty interesting. It has great photos from the event and stuff, and, you know, bits and bobs like that really really caught my eye as a child. And obviously, um, you know, there were some standout stories on this show. It looked back as being, uh, you know, not everyone's favourite mania, but, you know, <laughs> it really does stand out. It's different. It's definitely different. <laughs> yeah, it really, really was. And uh, watching it back this week in preparation for this recording, you know, it did bring, out, bring back lots of wonderful memories. Now, you know, WrestleMania 9, it, it, as we said, it's been criticised over time. It's been called the worst WrestleMania, one of the worst WrestleManias of all time. I probably wouldn't have it down as the worst, but, uh, uh, you know, despite its obvious lows, it did have some some memorable moments and uh, one or two okay matches, in my opinion. But but WrestleMania 9, you know, it does have its defenders um, and it does have its critics. And maybe after watching it back this week, it's, it's kind of, you know, made me think differently about the events uh, and about this particular WWF showcase 27 years later. But watching it back yourself recently in preparation for this podcast, and I know you, you said you watched it back uh, recently before we got in touch. So you've seen it back a couple of times recently. How how has your kind of has your mind changed much about the event? Obviously, you've got warm fuzzy memories about WrestleMania Nine from back in the day, but uh, what's your kind of overall thoughts on the show having watched it back recently? Then, Mike. 
Yeah, so there's bits of it that stood out a lot more than I expected. And you know what? I, I look at it a bit more favorably now because over time, uh, you know, my mind had sort of been soured on it a little bit. Things like um, listening to Bret Hart speak about it and, you know, um, just the the general thing about Hogan at the end, uh, it's sort of viewed as being very negative. But then mm. when I watched it back, I, I actually feel a lot more positive about it, to be honest, because... Uh, I, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but the pop at the end of the main event, you know, I, I'd dismissed that in my mind and thought that was terrible what had happened there, you know. But yeah. when I look back at it, that was such a pop. The whole crowd are going nuts. And, they're, you know, at the end of the day, the crowd who were there have gone home happy from the show. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. definitely. So, um, you, you got the feeling that they were definitely enjoying it in the outdoor arena. It was the first ever outdoor WrestleMania. But, um, the fans loved it. They had a whale of a time. And, uh, you know, it, it was uh, at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, Nevada, the 4th of April, 1993. Now, whereas we, when we reviewed WrestleMania 8, that was uh, from the Hoosier Dome, 67,000 people. We're used to WrestleMania being in big domes or big stadiums, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people or more. And this one was was probably one of the lowest attended uh, turnouts WrestleMania, mainly because of the setting, mainly because they used, uh, you know, an arena that they had set up. They usually use it for boxing and things like that. But it's just 16,891 here at Caesars Palace, the first ever outdoor WrestleMania. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of dressed to be like the, the Roman Coliseum and the setting and kind of, like you say, it was really uh, caught your eye that the setting and the scenery and how they dressed up the ring and how they dressed up all the announcers. Uh, but we were introduced to the broadcast by Gorilla Monsoon in a toga, something we thought we'd never see. Uh, they were introduced to a, a fairly fresh-faced Jim Ross making his WWF debut, having recently left WCW. Uh, we had uh, Caesar and Cleopatra come down on an elephant. That was pretty good fun. Uh, then we was introduced to Finkus Maximus. Uh, he then introduced Randy Savage being carried down on a sedan, being fed grapes by Vestal Virgins. Now, Mike, would you like to be carried anywhere on a sedan being fed grapes? That looked like a, a pretty neat gig for me. It happens at TNT at the after parties quite a lot. We tend to find. So, uh, yeah, it's something that's happened before. And then obviously um, after that was my favourite entrance. That's when uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan comes out oh, with his belly yeah. dancers and he's on oh, the on the yeah. camel going backwards <laughs> on the camel. So, uh, yeah, classic uh, WrestleMania moment there. And, uh, yeah, when he falls off the, off the camel and uh, Jim Ross is still trying to conduct it in a serious manner and uh, <laughs> Macho Man's having a bit of a laugh, you know, the little bits like that make me smile, you know, uh, seeing uh, seeing them all having a good laugh together, you know, and it's, uh, you know, they, you know, it's good banter and it, was, uh, it started to show off well. And then uh, obviously you've got the opening bout. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, going going back going back to Bobby Heenan. I mean, you know, we we were talking in the WrestleMania Eight review that that dropped over the weekend about uh, you know what a fantastic pair him and Gorilla Monsoon was. Now Gorilla didn't do much commentating uh, after WrestleMania Eight through the rest of uh, 1992 into 1993. Uh, Bobby Heenan was still there, but this was one of his last gigs on the microphone uh, behind the desk in WWF at the time. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking in the WrestleMania Eight review about what what a comedy genius Bobby Heenan was uh, then and like I say WrestleMania 9 he was much the same and uh, he, he probably he did look genuinely terrified coming coming out backwards on the back of that cabal but uh, he, he, I was watching it back yesterday morning with my daughter who's uh, not really a wrestling fan but she was kind of captivated by what was going on and kind of the elephants and Cleopatra and, and all that and when Bobby Heenan came out the back of the cabal even she laughed and that made me kind of enjoy the moment even more and uh, yeah definitely that was probably looking back on it probably one of the things that really stand out to me was was Bobby Heenan's entrance and uh, uh, on highlight packages of the brain that's one one bit of footage you always get shown but um yeah, definitely a fantastic way to start the show. I mean, you mentioned about the opening match, and we'll get to that very, very soon. But I don't know if a lot of our, our listeners were aware that there was a dark match. They tend to take these dark matches. Uh, you know, nowadays we have these really prolonged kickoff uh, shows with like two-hour shows and lots of matches on them. Uh, a lot of the dark matches weren't aired. There weren't there weren't kickoff matches back then or kickoff shows. And there was a dark match with uh, uh, El Matador, Tito Santana, and Papa Shango. Uh, and of course, twelve months earlier, they were featured on the main card of WrestleMania 8, but not so much the case at WrestleMania 9. And uh, both Shango and Santana had left the WWF before the end of 1993. So um, 
But then getting into the opening match then, Mike, Shawn Michaels, Intercontinental Champion, going up against Tatanka. Now, Shawn Michaels brought out Luna Vachon. Now, I think this was her first appearance uh, on our WWF screens at the time. And Sherry Martel, she came out to accompany Tatanka. Now, Mike, you know, this was one of the matches I was looking forward to back in 1993. You know, I was about 16 years old at the time. uh, So that's kind of giving away my age a little bit. But uh, this is my my, my second WrestleMania as a fan. And I, I was already more of a fan of the in-ring product, in-ring action, as opposed to the characters and the storylines. And I was definitely looking forward to this one. But what about yourself, my friend? Uh, yeah, no, certainly it was a, you know, it's a real um, a great opener to the show. And obviously they trusted Sean um, to open the show the year before. And then obviously, and you know, WrestleMania 9, uh, Tatanka as well, great guy. Uh, one one thing I always remember is Tatanka has the same birthday as me. So anytime I've met Tatanka, I always make sure to tell him that. So, uh, <laughs> But he's still going. And, uh, you know, at this time, he he was on his, uh, his hot winning streak. Um, yeah. And it was a really interesting clash because obviously uh, I was, let me think, I was nine at the time. So, um, yeah, so it was interesting to see because Sean was obviously really up and coming. He'd had yeah. the storyline with Marty Giannetti. And I believe uh, somebody said Marty was meant to be coming in to have the match against Sean at this show as well. But then his arrest yeah. and, and bits and bobs like that, leaving the company sort of soured that. And it was Tatanka who had the shot instead. Um, and, you know, the match on paper looked like it was going to be amazing. And watching it as well, it turned out as a, as a classic encounter. Uh, Sean with the, you know, great heel work. Um, and then the only thing that let it down, I think, is the uh, a really odd finish. I, I yeah. thought it was a real strange strange finish to that one watching it back what, what did you think yourself yeah well, well as I said this was the match I was most looking forward to Tanker was on his hot undefeated streak I think he went well over a year um, undefeated and they were really building him up and I, I, I as much of a fan as my of Michael's at the time I really wanted Tanker to go over I thought they were pushing him well I thought this was kind of the ideal opportunity for them to put him over uh, for the IC champ uh, but they never did that and then, like you say you know Tanker seemingly getting the upper hand towards the end of the match. Uh, and then for some bizarre reason, Shawn Michaels, he pulled the referee to the outside underneath the bottom rope for some unknown reason. Tatanka then hits his finishing move on Shawn Michaels, but the referee had already made up his mind, calls for the bell and gives DQ win to Tatanka. So Tatanka wins the match, but as we all know, doesn't uh, win the championship. Uh, I mean, looking back on this match, Mike, you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It was a really good match. Um, I think it did deliver on many fronts. And you rightly mentioned that not only did Shawn Michaels open the show at that WrestleMania, WrestleMania 9, he did at WrestleMania 8, but he also opened the show at WrestleMania 7. So this was his third uh, yeah. WrestleMania because uh, he's part of the Rockers, of course, and they opened against the Barbarian and Haku at WrestleMania 7. So, you know, for some reason, I obviously trusted Shawn Michaels to go out there and uh, uh, deliver a hot match and get the crowd going. And he certainly did here, but a bit of a letdown to an end, uh, end of the match, I must say. Um, the other highlight of the match, in my opinion, was was the little scrap that took place after the match between Sherry and Luna. That was pretty good. I think they had a little post-WrestleMania feud after this as well. Um, but then, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think this all kind of lived up to Sean's heel character, Sean's heel persona and doing something heelish uh, to, to, to keep hold of the belt, which is what certainly happened here. Um, but, um, yeah, a, a, an interesting match to get the show going. Certainly uh, one of the highlights or one of the better matches of the show. But uh, then we get into what I think was my match of the night then, Mike, and it was the Steiners versus the Head Shrinkers. So this was another match that I was really looking forward to going into. Um, you know, 16-year-old Jonners looking forward to WrestleMania 9. This was, you know, t- t- two solid uh, teams, two exciting teams, two experienced tag teams. And I wasn't disappointed. I really loved the fact that Steiners were in the WWF as well after seeing, you know, so many of their matches on WCW VHS tapes uh, that uh, I was able to acquire back in the day. But uh, one thing that really stands out in this match, 27 years on, was how stiff both teams were. This was a really solid encounter. And one spot in particular that really stands out in my mind and, and makes me wince just as much today as it did back then was when uh, the head shrinkers, they kind of tossed Scott Stein almost head first oh. over the top rope. I over think he probably top, went between yeah. the top and the middle rope, landed head first. It took him pretty much the rest of the match to recover. Uh, and then you had uh, Rick Steiner. He hit a pretty impressive, uh, like a power slam uh, off the shoulders of Fatu, dropping yeah. Samu. And then Scott Steiner came in, hit uh, you know, a bit of a, a dodgy Frankensteiner, but a Frankensteiner Frankenstein nonetheless. <laughs> it was, but he was probably still a bit dizzy from the move before. 
and then the Steiners picked up their uh, first and only WrestleMania win, and the Steiners were gone before WrestleMania 10 in 20 uh, in 1994. But uh, honestly, one of the best matches on the show, and uh, a match that I remember quite fondly even to this day. But looking back on this one, Mike, what stood out to you, and does it stand the test of time? Yeah, well, I'd watched the Steiners for. Um, you know, on videos and stuff at the time as well. So I had um, Steiners versus Doom from WCW days that I'd watched. So I knew what the Steiners yeah. could bring. And the head shrinkers at that time were really, uh, were really coming through with uh, with Afro. And you know, um, they'd obviously been around a little while as like the Samoan SWAT team was it. And they yeah. had, uh, you know, they always impressed in the matches leading up to that. An interesting thing I noticed was uh, when I when I was listening to it back, I noticed a few cracking comments towards the end of the uh, Tatanka and Michaels contest. Um, it, it, it actually randomly, I think the ref gave a count out in the end in that one, you know, I, I, when oh. I watched it last night, I'd always thought it was a DQ myself. Ah. And then he actually gives a count out, which is even more obscure. And the thing that <laughs> you notice it, it even more was that um, Macho Man goes, uh, the tank has got nothing to be ashamed of. The referee, on the other hand, <laughs> <laughs> drops that into the commentary. Yeah, <laughs> but, absolutely. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, were you a fan of? You said you're a fan of the Steiners and the head shrinkers going into this one, but it was such a hard hitting match, wasn't it? It's pretty stiff, and you didn't really get stiff matches like this in the WWF back in the day. But uh, yeah, that's what really stands out to me. But um, what what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so it was stiff, definitely, and then um, you know, even like just after Steiners took that bump over the top, which is horrific to watch back. I've watched it back a few times now because I'd never I'd never spotted that before. And then when I watched it back last week, I was just like, oh my god, he <laughs> top rope and i don't know what they were thinking i don't know if samu has took a, a bit of a slip as he's gone to throw him over and fatu's meant to pull the top rope down but it just ends up with steiner literally flying like 15 feet down just onto his he must have landed on his face and his chest uh it's a horrific botch and um you know it's just one of them things you know you pick up a knock but then as soon as he gets up from that Affa hits him with uh, with whatever that little garden <laughs> ornament is he's carrying about as well as hard as he can <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But uh, Scott Steiner was a tough dude, though. He was a tough dude. They were both solid, solid dudes, weren't they? Yeah, and that's when he, uh, that's when Macho Man comes out with the classic, he's not a manager, he's a trainer of viciousness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Macho Man, we do miss you, we do miss you. (laughs) Oh, but But, uh, hell of an encounter. Yeah, and of course the um, the move that really stands out as well is obviously um, when Rick's up on the shoulders of... um, Mm. The guy's going for their finish and he hits that big power slam off the top. That's a really impressive move and does stand out. That obviously changes the tide in the match. And then uh, Scott hits uh, almost a full Frankensteiner, which is, you know, a sick move. But, uh, you know, he, he, he almost hits it. It's close. Yeah, it uh, was good enough. It was good yeah, enough and uh, still looked pretty good. Uh, but uh, loved that match. Love watching that back. And that's one of the matches I could easily, you know, uh, rewatch time and time again. Um, love love those two teams. And uh, it was such a shame that they didn't do more with the Steiners back in the day. Um, but uh, yeah, there we go. And, and then another interesting match, but for different reasons you could say uh doink the clown versus crush now to completely contradict what i said at the top of the show where i said i was more of a a fan of the kind of in-ring action as opposed to characters i I was a big fan of doink the clown i was a big fan especially of of the the evil clown uh played by matt Bourne at the time i think he played the evil clown to perfection and um not only was he an excellent evil clown, he was an excellent wrestler, very, very good in the ring, which kind of, you know, uh, maybe enjoy his work even more. Uh, I was also a bit of a fan of, of Kona Crush as well here in 1993. I, I thought that the, the WWF had big plans for Crush at the time. You know, he had the look, he had the size, he had some you know, fairly good moves. He was popular with the fans. And I thought they was going to push him as a future champion. That didn't quite transpire. If we skip ahead 12 months, he's a, he's a big, nasty heel going up against Randy Savage at WrestleMania 10. But, uh, what were your thoughts on, on, on Crush and Doink the Clown uh, back then? I mean, you know, uh, what did you say? He was about uh, eight or nine years old at the time, Mike. You know, these yeah, must be two, know, quite, two quite interesting but, characters back in the day. Exactly. Well, Crush stands out as, you know, such a like a colourful character. At the time, I didn't even realise he was the Crush who I'd seen in Demolition because mm. obviously I'd watched all the videos from the VHS store, you know, and 
I knew my history to that point of watching this one. Uh, I was watching it back and this was probably my favorite uh, storyline on the show uh, at the time. And still looking back at it, it really stands out as a great, as a great story. It's one there. Uh, I find people who don't watch wrestling can watch that story and still be entertained. And yeah. uh, I, I found I had um, year in review 93, uh, a VHS and it really showed the whole feud. So it showed the bit leading up to it where Doink had took his arm off and hit Crush and the, you know, Crush the Doink, the, the whole crowd are chanting, and then uh, he's took his own arm off, he's took his own arm off, you know, and then he it whacks him with that. And that was, uh, you know, the shock of the people in the crowd when he does that is, uh, you know, is completely different. And as you said, Matt Bourne as Doink, uh, the heel Doink was just amazing, you know, and um, he said before, before this match, he's bringing a sense of humour to the party. And by the end of the show, Crush is going to be seeing double vision, and you know, every, nobody caught onto that. And then, obviously, <laughs> when the match itself happens, it's a, it's a, I think, in a way, it's a masterpiece of how that match works because it just, uh, it's completely different, isn't it? And it's, um, it, it's just brilliant. And, and Bobby Heenan's commentary again on that, where he's saying it's an illusion at the end, you know, obviously, when the, uh, when the second doink appears and, uh, and beats Crush down with him, and then they do the whole uh, David Copperfield thing. Uh, yeah. It's just amazing, and Bobby Heenan says it's the greatest trick I've ever seen. It's an illusion. It's just something special, you know. It's really great to look back on, and yeah, uh, yeah. even more interesting. I saw that uh, Dave Meltzer said that the original idea wasn't to have a second Doink, but was for um, some sort of paint to spray out of the top of Doink's wig into Crush's face when he when he hits his finisher, and to blind Crush. But uh, I'm glad they went with the uh, with the double Doinks because. Uh, it's uh you know it's it's a great moment and although you know after that he's sort of frowned upon doink especially when it became uh, Steve Kern um yeah. you know it's not looked back on as fondly but that um that heel doink you know I just think it's great and uh you know it, it that really um in a way has stood the test of time because it's still watchable and it's still just, you know my son watched it yesterday and he was just laughing his head off it's uh it's great just you know yeah. What, your I mean, opinion, I mean, yeah, I mean, the match wasn't anything to talk about, but but certainly, you know, the, the double doink was, was pretty damn special. And uh, I, I liked what you said there about Dave Meltzer. I read the same thing that they had this uh, little contraption set up in his wig and when Crush did the, the cranium crusher that uh, he was going to get sprayed in the face. And that would have been fun as well. That would have been a, a quite a unique, um, unique end to the match, you could say. But double doink worked. But I, I kind of saw that as kind of the beginning of the end, really, for, for doink as you kind of alluded to earlier because as soon as they started doing multiple doinks it kind of diluted the mystique of the the evil doink and uh, uh certainly matt bourne uh matt bourne left the the, the wwf and uh, then you had you know ray apollo and steve kern and various other people playing uh, uh, doink they turned in babyface then they introduced a uh, little dink. I'm sure you remember him, and it kind of fell off a cliff after that. But I'll always yeah. have fond memories of that kind of initial year of, of Doink the Clown, the evil clown, and uh, he'll always go down as one of my favourite characters um, because it, it really, really worked. It scared the kids in the audience. Uh, the adults really kind of got a kick out of it, and uh, he could uh, put on a good show in the ring as well. But uh, let, let's skip forward to the next match then, Mike. And it was a bit of a nothing match, really, to be honest with you. And it, it only went uh, about three or four minutes to be fair razor ramon versus bob backland now you know i always thought this was a bit of a strange pairing on a wrestlemania uh, card to be honest with you uh but back then wwf did things like this where they had two wrestlers you know that uh, they didn't really know what to do with but they wanted to put on this show to give them a wrestlemania payday and to give them a bit of extra exposure uh but if you think about it razor ramon he was in the wwf title match the previous pay-per-view at the war rumble against bret hart and here he is kind of you know, on the show of shows against Bob Backlund, he's returning to the WWF after however many years being out, 43 years old, former WWF champion. And, um, you know, it only went three minutes in. What was even more strange about this one was it ended up in kind of like a bit of a roll-up finish uh, with Razor Ramon getting the win. So a bit of a nothing match, but any memories coming back about this one in particular? Yeah, you know what? The match itself didn't stand out at the time. But looking back at it and uh, reading the article that went with it, it, the way they were trying to play it was that Razor was the bad guy at the time, obviously, big heel, all in yeah. black at Mania, Backlund, the returning hero, and it really sort of backfired on WWE because Backlund came out in the US jacket. He'd been away for eight years, um, and obviously it was meant to be a big homecoming, you know, wrestling champ. And the idea, obviously, was to get Razor over as a wrestler because, I believe, 
And anyway, when the match starts straight away, the crowd are firmly behind Razor, which is not what the what they want. It's one of the first times that I've ever thought a crowd has completely rebelled against what they what they're meant to think. Because yeah. they're chanting Razor, Razor and you know, commentary acknowledge it. And then, you know, obviously the match itself is really um is very short. And then Razor wins with the schoolboy roll up. Um and it's really odd, I think. But it gets Razor over. It, it, you know, the idea is to get Razor over and show that he can be a wrestler as well. He's built, beat the former ch- champion who's come back. And it, it's odd that uh, Backlund's lost in his first match back. And then, but does that sort of play into the start of him starting to go a bit mad? Do you think is that the uh, idea Maybe. behind that story? Maybe, Maybe. do you think? Because I, I think it was. Um, well, I, I know that it was two years later that he had his uh, his submission match with Bret Hart at WrestleMania 11, which is also were kind of looked at, um, you know, in not very favourable eyes to many fans. But um, yeah, it probably wasn't too far after this where you know things started to change for Backlund. I thought his, his heel character was far more entertaining, uh, much more watchable, to be honest with you. But I really wanted to see Razor own hit the the Razor's edge in this match. I think that would have been a, a really quite a big impactful move. I loved the Razor's uh, edge as a, as a kid. I thought it was a really I thought it was probably the best finisher back in the early 90s to be honest with you. It just looked tremendous and Razor being that big what was he six foot five six foot six character just looked tremendous but uh yeah uh, looks like an easily forgettable match but a good win for Razor Ramon nonetheless but um then we get a, a kind of a backstage segment with uh, Tag Team Champions Money Inc. And they were talking about how Hulk Hogan got to, uh, apparently jumped by some cronies at a gym the night before, sporting a, a vicious black eye, which we'll get to see in the next match. Now, Mike, there's always been these massive conspiracy theories about how Hogan got his shiner prior to WrestleMania 9, the night before WrestleMania 9. And uh, one popular urban legend or conspiracy theory is that Hogan got into a legit fight with Randy Savage the night before Mania and that it was Randy who gave him the black eye um, in an argument over Randy's ex-wife Elizabeth uh, apparently hiding out at Hogan's Malibu beach house with Hogan's then wife Linda uh, because uh, of Liz's apparent living in fear of Randy uh, he was obviously desperately kind of uh, jealous of anything uh, she did and uh, apparently he was uh, kind of concerned that uh, she was uh, having a friendship, shall we say, with Hogan's friends. So we're kind of hiding out uh, with Linda at the Malibu Beach House. But uh, yeah, apparently it was, it was Randy Savage that gave Hogan the black eye. But any thoughts on these kind of urban legends and these myths about how Hogan got his mysterious black eye at WrestleMania 9, my friend? Yeah, well, the original story that uh, WWF peddled was that he'd, uh, he'd had a, was it a water skiing incident, a jet ski incident? Yeah, the jet week ski, yeah. And he'd yeah. come off the jet ski and hurt himself. Um, which is feasible. However, yeah, it's Dave Meltzer and uh, it's a Doink the Clown rumour I heard. It's a Matt Bourne, one that Matt mentioned. And um, it, it's on Dark Side of the Ring as well. That sort of story would, would fit the timeline, wouldn't it, from uh, yeah. from that? But um, well, I noticed I was I was looking out for it specifically when I watched the match. And as he's coming out, Macho Man says a, a particular line. I think he says something along the lines of, Oh, they took him good, or something like that, as as he's coming out. <laughs> and it just makes me think if he if it is him who has drilled him, then it's uh, you know he's obviously being fed lines of what he's meant to say, and he's covered up quite well for it, you know, because <laughs> listening to the commentary, you wouldn't think that that, that the guy who's just you know beat him up for that is there. Uh, so it's either Macho Man being absolutely top professional, or uh, or yet yeah, or the rumor is uh, is is you know not founded. So we'll have to we'll have to see. I'm sure I'm sure Definitely. more will. Uh, come a bit out of some sort of shoot interview with Hogan or something in the future. The story will come out eventually. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. But that led us into the uh, the tag team title match. You had current champions going into it, Money Inc. versus uh, Hulk Hogan and Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Now, uh, did you know, Mike, that the original challenges for Money Inc.'s gold at WrestleMania 9 was meant to be the Nasty Boys? who were Nasty feud- boys, yeah. they, they were feuding with the champions from about October 92 through to February 93. Uh, that was until Brutus Beefcake, he came back onto the scene. He got roughed up by DiBiase and uh, IRS on a an episode of Monday Night Raw leading to the return of the Hulkster and the rest, as they say, is history. But uh, would you, I mean, the Nasty Boys, they were legendary heels, but a turned babyface at uh, the back end of 92. Uh, and everybody had them penciled as the uh, the opponents for Money Inc. at WrestleMania, but that didn't happen. Yeah, well, the um, the thing that actually led to the Nasty Boys turning face was was one of my favourite ever matches. It was the uh, it was when the uh, the Nasties beat down Money Inc. because Money Inc. had got the title shot, 
against the natural disasters on there. I think it might have been an episode of Challenge or something. And that is one of my favourite matches ever because IRS gets beat up before the match by the Nasties. And uh, Million Dollar Man and Jimmy Hart, they're, they're all still there and everything. And then they have the match against the natural disasters. And uh, it's where Yo- um, Earthquake hits his head on the uh, guardrail at the side and goes down to the Million Dollar Dream. And Money Inc., you know, take the belts. And then after that's when the Nasty Boys come out and uh, and throw Jimmy Hart off the stage onto Money Inc. and set that feud off. And uh, I, I think it's a shame that they didn't get to do the Nasty Boys Money Inc. match. I would have loved that. And uh, and and it's nice that Brutus came back in. And that, that you know, the storyline um, was great with Brutus getting waffled in the face with the briefcase on there uh, on Raw as a child. That was a really shocking one because they had the. Uh, the, the bit of blood about the ring and everything, didn't they? If you remember that, yeah, um, yeah. the canvas was covered in blood from that one. So as a child, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, what have they done to Brutus? But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different way of bringing Hogan and the Mega Maniacs back in and Jimmy. And I think, uh, you know, in a way, it's a shame that uh, Nasties didn't get the big match against Money Inc. I think that may have been a better match, to be honest, than what yeah. we actually ended up getting. Um, but, uh, you know, you had to have Hogan and Brutus on the card somewhere. And it was, uh, at the time, it was a big draw for people to, you know, you know, I'm sure having the Mega Maniacs on would have got people watching. So uh, they yeah, made definitely. their decisions, don't they, for them reasons. So <laughs> I think it was, it was all part of Vince McMahon's uh, kind of grand plan as well as we talk about uh, kind of at the, the, the back end of the podcast. But, uh, as, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it wasn't really a fantastic match. It went 18 minutes. It was the longest match on the card, longest match on the show uh, with Money Inc. eventually retaining their championships via disqualification. Uh, we had Hogan, Beefcake and Jimmy Hart, they, they roughed up one of the officials, one of the referees at the end of the match. Uh, the crowd were definitely into it, though. The crowd were definitely into Hogan and his pose downs um, more than they were the in-ring stuff, let's be honest. But uh, Mike, I've got to be honest, you know, even I knew back then, 1993, that, that Hogan was a couple of years past his prime, let's be honest, as, you know, as the face of the company, just made his return back in 1993. But here, especially alongside Beefcake and Jimmy Hart, Hogan just seemed a, a bit of a parody of his former self, to be honest with you. But Mike, I've got to ask you, you know, 1993, you were a youngster. Were you a, a little Hulkamaniac back in the day? Yeah, yeah, I think I was. I'd watched uh, Hulk Hogan's, like, greatest greatest hits VHS had there you know I'd watched uh, Wrestlemania 5, 6 all, all the early Wrestlemanias and uh, I was a big fan but I never watched this match back in the day randomly uh, it, it's only one I've watched back since and Hulk looks uh, he looks very lean uh, in this match mm. was something I noticed um, I, I didn't like the ending again another another poor ending to a match True. and uh, yeah it doesn't really jump out to me this one at all Um Jimmy Hart turning his jacket inside out to, to the ref's jacket was uh, was probably the biggest pop of the match. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it, it was, um, you know, the early part of this card, the, you know, the Tatanga Shawn Michaels, the Steiner Head Shrinkers, and then even the Doink and Crush was probably the best part of the show for me. And, the, yeah. and I find the tail end of it really uh, lost its way, you know, and um, yeah, but Backland Razor Ramon was not great. And this tag match was not what it could have been. You know what I mean? And yeah, uh, Ted, Ted and IRS, I normally love their matches, but they, um, it just doesn't mesh well at all. You know, their style and uh, with Hogan and Beefcake, it's uh, it's a two different sort of styles of wrestling. Tag versus yeah. two very sort of, uh, you know, it's the hulking up and all that, isn't it? So, um, yeah, yeah, it just doesn't mesh well for me, that match, unfortunately. So, yeah, no, no, totally agree. Totally agree. And uh, you know, a, a good excuse, I suppose, for him to get Hogan on the card. And uh, as we know, you know, w- w- when we get to the main events, uh, you know, obviously a, a, another reason to have him around to do what uh, happened in the end. But uh, the next match was a match that I was quite looking forward to. You know, back uh, as, as a 16-year-old John as the narcissist Lex Luger versus Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig. Now I've got to say, you know, as good as an entrance they gave Lex Luger on this one, the pop that Mr. Perfect got when he came out was something else. I thought he got an excellent reception when he came out and he looked great. Uh, You know, this was one of the matches I was looking forward to. Um, 
back then I thought, yeah, two experienced wrestlers, a bit of a dream match, or so I thought. And then the bell rang. Uh, you know, Lex Luger was never one to really deliver, to be honest with you, when the bell rang. But to Mr. Perfect, never had a bad match as far as I was concerned. He still was showing that pace around the ring, uh, the way he was doing his leapfrogs and his excellent drop kicks. His drop kicks were second to the, let's be honest. But uh, Lex Luger was really being carried in that match by, uh, my, by Mr. Perfect. But, uh, you know, Vince was a body guy and uh, Lex Luger was the, you know, epitome of being a body guy. But, uh, however... It was Luger who picked up the win in this one with a, with a, another weak finish. Let's be honest, a bit of a backslide yeah. um, after you know ten and a half minutes. The referee failing to notice that Perfect's feet or legs or pretty much the whole of his body was on the ropes, but the referee didn't pick it up. <laughs> Counted to three anyway. Uh, but uh, after the match, Luger laid out Perfect with his, his loaded running forearm. Uh, of course, he had his titanium plate in his in his uh, right arm after a motorcycle accident. Uh, and then when Perfect came to, he went backstage, got involved in a bit of a scrap, a bit of a back stage fight with Shawn Michaels and to be honest with you that, that was uh, better than anything that happened in the ring with Luger in the prior match so I really enjoyed that uh, backstage uh, scrap and that did lead to a bit of a feud between Michaels and Perfect I think they had a match at King of the Ring 93 which I really enjoyed but uh, give us your thoughts on the narcissist and uh, Mr Perfect and how this match went down. Yeah so I'd seen um, Lex Luger previous on uh, WCW and I think they did a good job of building him up as being, a, you know, with the Florida guy. And, you know, Jim yeah. Ross talked him up a treat on that. Um, there was a match he had with Ric Flair. I think it was Capital uh, Capital Combat in the cage. And, uh, you know, you could buy into Lex from that. It made him look like a great wrestler and everything. And um, it was just a shame that when he came to the narcissist, um, it, you know, his frailties were exposed, unfortunately. And against Perfect, who is, you know, one of the best wrestlers ever. Um, it just, they didn't mesh. They didn't click at all. Um you know, it, you know, perfect, you know, the stuff he does um, executed brilliantly. And yeah. um, just Luger, just um, unfortunately, he wasn't at this time. The match just wasn't right. It didn't work. As you say, the backslide into the ropes just didn't work. And uh, the, the match was just a waste of time at the end of the day. Uh, Luger's entrance was the best thing that came of it for him. And yeah. uh, the best thing that came of perfect was afterwards with Shawn Michaels setting that up with the... Uh, where they set up the feud with Michaels and he went through the uh, the windshield outside Madison Square Garden and all that. So um, that was, uh, you know, that led into like a decent little feud, as you said, with uh, even what didn't Marty Gennetti sort of come back on the tail end of that as well. With, I think uh, that was around the time. Yeah. But uh, when Marty yeah. Won the Intercontinental title and then when he right. through the towel in his face, didn't he? So uh, that makes all makes a bit more sense now from what from linking them together. But uh, yeah, the match itself, Luger and Perfect, not not a great one, unfortunately. Yeah, and we were only a, a few months away from him turning Luger babyface. And of course, they saw Luger as uh, the next uh, kind of golden goose, you could say, when the, the Lex Express all kind of leading to WrestleMania 10 and or leading to SummerSlam uh, 93. So it was a quick, quite a quick turnaround from uh, being this uh, dastardly heel to this, you know, beloved babyface, the Lex Express, the, you know, the, the SummerSlam match, which um, I think that ended in a, in a count out victory. And they kind of hoisted Lex aloft as if it uh, kind of, won the championship but uh, that wasn't to be and then he still didn't have his crowning moment at WrestleMania 10 and they kind of left that for uh, for Bret Hart to to kind of steal the moment as he much deserved but uh, it didn't quite happen for Lex Luger in the WWF did it? I mean he, he did have a tag title run with uh, Davey Boy Smith I think a year or so later but um, you know I think they obviously soured a little bit on Lex Luger because they realised yeah, that think, uh, yeah. he, wasn't, he wasn't all that yeah, I think the best moment they did with him was when he um, slammed Yokozuna on the uh, USS Intrepid, you know, for the July yeah. the 4th thing. That was sort of the turning point for him there. And that was um, that was a really well-played-out angle. You know, Crush, Scott Steiner, Matcham, and had all tried to body slam Yokozuna. And then they built it up, you know, with the helicopter coming in. And it was Lex, and he had his USA Stars and Stripes T-shirt on. And suddenly he's not the narcissist anymore. He's a, you know, he's a proud... US citizen and the commentary put him over and everything, you know, and it was, uh, and then he slammed Yoko after hitting him with the forearm. And that was a huge moment from, for him and could have gone well from there. But even then with the Lex Express and everything, they sort of, um, they lost the way because all the time, all you know, Bret Hart's winning match after match after match and the excellence of execution. And Luger's out on a bus, you know, going around the nation, shaking hands with people. So 
you know, you know who your wrestling fans are going to pick out of that, you know, straight away. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think the funniest story I heard about uh, the Body Slam Challenge on the uh, USS uh, uh, Intrepid or, or whatever it was, was I think they were out there for, for hours and um, it, it was like 40 degree heat. It was a bloody hot day and even more hot being out on the Intrepid. And uh, the, the ring canvas was uh, was really, really hot. And Mr. Fuji, uh, he, he kind of took away Yokozuna's flip flops and kind of threw them away. Uh, so for, for the entire duration that Yokozuna was out there, he had to stand in this boiling hot ring, uh, with, you know, just just with his feet and kind of he was uh, doing a, a funny little hop and dance and trying to keep his feet cool, but uh, and trying to keep it professional for the cameras as well as the challenges were coming up. But uh, Mr. Fuji was the king of ribs, and I think he definitely played a, a pretty good rib on Yokozuna that day. But uh, there we go. That that leads us nicely to kind of the, the semi-final match, you could say, the second to last match, and uh, another weird and wonderful match that's looked back on kind of uh you know fairly unpopular with a lot of uh wrestling fans and uh traditionalists but it was the giant gonzalez uh accompanied to the ring by harvey whipple and versus the undertaker now looking back on this match today i feel completely different to how i felt kind of watching it 27 years ago now maybe i've mellowed a little bit as a bit more of a mature wrestling fan as i've kind of come into my 40s but uh, uh you know I, I enjoyed this match watching it back this week possibly because it was quite short uh, and i think it needed to be a short match to be honest with you but uh, i also enjoyed it watching watching it back because it was one of just a few matches that the giant gonzalez had in the wwf he didn't have a, a prolonged stay uh, back in the, the 90s uh, but uh, um, this was also one of the only matches I can remember The Undertaker being dominated and manhandled pretty much throughout the whole match, um, especially in a WrestleMania match, which we know, you know, he built up a, a dominant undefeated streak. Uh, but uh, give us your thoughts on, on, on this one then. Uh, but a bit, of a bit of a weird one. You had the eight foot tall giant Gonzalez, the six foot ten, The Undertaker. So obviously back then they liked to pair The Undertaker up with the, the weird and wonderful monsters and characters that would come into WWF from time to time. Uh, but this one, as the WrestleMania match for The Undertaker was quite unique, wasn't it? Yeah, out of all his WrestleMania matches, I know a lot of people say it was his, his worst one. Um, Gonzalez was El Gigante in WCW, wasn't he? He was a former yeah. basketball player. Was he from, where was he from? Colombia, was he? Argentina. Argentina, yeah. And he's legit. Yeah. He's legitimately was a, a giant. So, you know, it was just unfortunate that he never really, um, it, it never really worked out for him. As a child, this he stood out to me as being, you know, he was a monster and he looked, you know, I had the stickers and everything. He was featured in the sticker albums and all that, you know, so he looked great. But then uh, obviously the Undertaker, the standout part for this was his entrance with the vulture and the, uh, oh, the hearse and everything. Yeah. Really good pageantry. And especially even with it being outside, it's still, uh, it added to it even more. Cause it was just like, what is this monster? You know, he was horrific, you know, and, uh, you know, you've got the Undertaker coming out and everything, and then Giant Gonzalez is eight foot tall and everything, and it's, uh, you, you know, it, it could have been, uh, you know, something really special, but as it was, it was another random, <laughs> random finish with a, with a one, one of the most random finishes ever. It just isn't Harvey bringing chloroform into it and everything. It's like ends with yeah. a random DQ, uh, so a DQ win for Taker. So the streak is intact in its early days, but it's. Uh, you know, they—I don't know what they were thinking really with the with the finish there and the storyline. Well, story that's when they tried to—that's when they tried to hide from the history books, isn't it? Really, because they, they you know show us all the, the classic endings and all the classic matches when we have, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of. Uh, the highlights package of Undertaker's kind of WrestleMania career, but they they don't kind of dwell too long on his giant Gonzalez feud and the, the chloroform ending. Uh, it certainly was unique, and uh, the Undertaker didn't win like he would usually win by a pinfall. It's a very strange disqualification ending, but quite a unique ending uh, nonetheless. But uh, I don't think the Undertaker has ever forgiven Bruce Pritchard, you know, because I think it's Bruce Pritchard that kind of paired these two together and suggested a WrestleMania match, and uh, I think uh, the Undertaker still holds it against Pritchard. To this day um but uh yeah you know he, I, I thought it was fairly entertaining watching it back 27 years later i was uh, mildly entertained like you say the entrances were good especially the undertaker's entrance uh the fact that the undertaker was was you know manhandled for the majority of the seven minutes that it went ahead but uh, let's, let's talk about the, the biggest talking point in this whole match Let's be honest, Mike, is a giant Gonzalez's outfit. Now, is this something that you would do your weekly shopping, Mike? You know, would you go down to Tesco's or Aldi uh, in a, a giant Gonzalez costume with the, with the furry codpiece? Uh, is that something that you'd, you'd, you'd put on your shopping list for Halloween this year? Well, last night I was doing um, 
a couple of little chats to friends and I was dressed as Ric Flair. So, uh, yeah, I probably would wear that down to Aldi, but uh, not many other people would. <laughs> it was definitely uh, a very strange, strange yeah. outfit. With his uh, with his muscles painted on and his uh, and his <laughs> a bit of a a bit of a man wig or whatever you want to call that particular piece of hair that he had with him, but it was uh, it was really odd and um, yeah, definitely a different look for him. He looked uh, scarier than than before when he was El Gigante. He looked a bit uh, cartoonish, didn't he? But uh, yeah. when he was uh, you know Giant Gonzalez, he did look like a bit of a uh, some sort of monster from Greek mythology or something. Bit of a but, yeti uh, yeah. or something, yeah. He definitely was. He was on his way to being the Yeti, wasn't he? So, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it didn't. Um, you know, it, it just looks weird. I just looking at a picture of it now. It is very odd. He's even I'll got hair sort of down the sides of his legs. <laughs> ha- 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 having, a, having a costume like that would certainly be good for social distancing. Put it that way. So that that that, that could definitely work in uh, today's uh, uh, environment. But let, let's talk about the main event <laughs> then. Uh, so Bray the Hitman Hart, WWF champion, uh, going into the match against Yokozuna. Now, in a pre-match interview, Hulk Hogan said that uh, he wanted a shot at the winner of the main event. Little did we know what was about to uh, end uh, the, the main event match, but. Uh, what was amazing to me was was Yokozuna. This was his first WrestleMania. He'd already headlined, uh, you know, the, the biggest show of the year by this point at WrestleMania, of course. And in fact, um, you know, he had one of the greatest first years, in my opinion, uh, in anybody in WWF history. If you think about it, he won the 1993 Royal Rumble to earn his championship shot at Mania. Uh, he main events the match at Mania. Uh, he wins the championship, or, or but you know, very briefly. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, uh, he wins it twice over a 12-month span, beating Bret Hart at WrestleMania 9 and then Hogan at uh, King of the Ring that year. Uh, now, people talk about you know great first years in the company, the likes of Brock Lesnar and Kurt Angle and Ronda Rousey, uh, but people often forget what a dominant monster and what a dominant champion Yokozuna was, especially in his first 12 months, Mike. Yeah, no, they did a great job of building him up. They had this, a lot of squash matches. And uh, if you watch that year in Review 93 that I watched, it has a whole sort of five-minute segment on Yokozuna, just showing him how he comes to the ring, how they did the great little entrance for him with the salt, and uh, the ladies bringing flowers to him, very traditional. You know, he was Japanese, he was the Japanese enemy, you know, that's how they build him. And uh, he was a monster, he could move. He, he was a very good, uh, you know, he was a very good athlete. Obviously, he got to, like, a, a huge size quite quickly there. And uh, I think they used him very well. And at that time, I, I you know, was a big Bret Hart fan, for my eighth birthday, I've got a Brett Hitman Hart card. And, you know, Yokozuna, you know, Brett took a while to win the championship in my eyes. And I was happy they had it. But, you know, Yokozuna was a big threat coming in. And, you know, he, he was a monster. And they did so well building him, I thought. And yeah. uh, an interesting aside is that uh, a couple of years later, my uh, dad was a taxi driver in Liverpool. And actually, um, just before Yokozuna passed away, my dad gave Yokozuna a lift in his taxi and they had to put the back seats down in the car to, to carry Yokozuna in the back. And uh, he signed an autograph for me. So I've got there on the rear. Uh, it's on one of the taxi receipts uh, to Mike. All the best WWF two-time champion Yokozuna. So uh, just an interesting piece of my uh, in my memorabilia collection. Oh, that's a fantastic uh, story. Yeah, what a great yeah, story. Yeah, and you know, but I've heard uh, everyone who speaks about Yoko says he was such a great guy. I yeah. did actually see him wrestle during that tour as well. Um, I believe it was at um, the Liverpool Empire as part of the, um, I think it was part of one of All Stars shows. And uh, I think people like, I think Earthquake might have been on it. Uh, Greg Valentine, the Barbarian, Jake the Snake may have been there, Marty Ginetti. And there was sort of a gang of them who'd all come over. And I saw Yoko just before he passed away. So that was a, you know, that was a great little uh, tour to go to, you know. So, uh, yeah. but in this event, he was, uh, he was the big monster. And, you know, Brett uh, tried so hard, you could see, to make that match good. And watching it back again, you know, you can see the efforts Brett goes to, to, uh, to try and make that a great match. And in my eyes, you know, it still, it still is a, d- a decent match. And even like the ending is, you can see what the, what they're thinking and what the thought process was. So uh, Brett was my favourite at the time. And, you know, I think um, Yoko, you know, he does his best in the match. And, you know, it is what it is. 
Yeah, well, I mean, this was another fascinating match, and it it went uh, nearly nine minutes, eight minutes, 55 seconds. But uh, according to the history books and one or two reports that have come out from, you know, Bret Hart, one or two others, this match kind of went home early, and they did have quite a few other spots kind of planned for the match. But apparently uh, uh, Yoko or Yoko and Bret decided to go home early because Yoko was just exhausted uh, from the time being in the ring. And, um, you know, Bret had all these big spots planned for the end of the match, which would have really kind of, you know, put a bit of a shine on him before he lost the championship but they decided to go home early Brett did uh, applied the sharpshooter rather awkwardly but uh, Mr. Fuji threw some salt into Brett's eyes and uh, I thought at the time kind of thinking back through my memory that uh, Yoko kind of uh, finished the match with a leg drop but he just covered after the, the salt angle the salt spots and uh, covered the, and was, a, was the new champion so um, looks like the match itself was okay looks like it would have been nice if it went another three four five minutes so that Brett could have got a few more moves in but I suppose uh, you know it is what it is but um then uh, we had uh, the Hulkster, Hulk Hogan. He came out to tend to his, his blinded friend, to the blinded Bret Hart. Uh, Mr. Fuji foolishly challenges Hogan to a championship match there. And then Hogan accepts. And uh, like the bully that Hogan was back then, he clotheslined poor old Mr. Fuji. Uh, yeah. One big boot and a leg drop of doom later. Hogan pins Yokozuna to become the five-time WWF champion in only 22 seconds. So, um, you know, I, I personally felt that at the time, the WWF were making a bit of a, a youth movements they were pushing the likes of Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Yokozuna, The Undertaker and so many more in this youth movement then Hogan comes back and I found it was a bit of a step backwards for the company at the time um, as I mentioned earlier you know there, there, were, there were so many others uh, you know that uh, should have been kind of positioned and doing what Hogan was doing at the time and, and uh, Hart really deserved kind of to be the, the, the one kind of with the championship at the end or at the very least Yokozuna should have uh, ended WrestleMania as the champion but uh, there's many others that feel that Hogan was past his prime at this time especially you know as, as the yellow and, and red babyface hero of course he, he turned things around when he turned heel as Hollywood Hogan in WCW from 96 onwards now watching this back did you get the same feelings 27 years later uh, that there was a double title change you know putting a belt on Yoko and then onto the immortal one to close the show but uh, you know how did this ending kind of sit with you when you were nine years old and how does it sit with you now 27 years later Mike well, you know what I've probably gone full circle on it to be honest when I first watched it as, as a kid I was uh, you know I was devastated that Yokozuna had took Brett's title off him and then when Mr Fuji was going come on Hogan you yellow belly you yellow yellow belly and uh Hogan accepts the challenge and Brett, you know, Brett said, go, you know, you get it out blinded, you know, it all made sense. And it was, uh, and I was there dancing up and down and happy that he'd, he'd won it, you know, still thinking, oh, he's the great Hulk Hogan. And the fans in attendance were all buzzing about it by the looks of him. When you watch it back, the whole crowd's on its feet is a huge pop and uh, everyone's happy. But then, you know, as time goes on and you learn a bit more about the industry and you learn about you know, you get to watch the history of what's happened and you sort of think, oh, you know, that was really shitty on Brett, you know, for that yeah. to happen. And, uh, and you know, it shouldn't have been like that. And you hear Brett talk about it and how, uh, how you know, he sarcastically he's like, go get him, Hogan, and all that, you know. And then you see Hogan at the end saying, don't mess with Mother Nature, brother, or whatever. It's like uh, I sort of really soured on it. But then watching it back again, it came, you know, this week, I sort of watched it again for what it was. And sort of thought, you know, they got the, you know, Brett got a lot of his stuff and he looked good. Uh, Yoko looked like a monster. And then yeah. Hogan came away with the belt, which it, it, I don't think w what happened after that was what they were hoping would have happened from it. They were probably hoping Hogan would build someone else up and, you know, make them look good, you know, in in the in the following months. But really, uh, just from WrestleMania 9 itself. It, it was a good ending to the show with Hogan going out as the champ, I think. But uh, it's obviously looked back on unfavorably by a lot of people who, you know, know how hard Brett had worked and, you know, and even how hard they built Yoko, how well they built Yoko up. It seemed, uh, you know, a bit mad for him to just lose straight away. But, you know, th this is wrestling and, uh, you know, WrestleMania 9, that was that was the ending of it. It was, uh, you yeah. know, it was different. It certainly would have been talked about, you know. So, yeah, I think there was... Uh, I think it was a rare, you know, at the time I was a fan of it. I look back now and I think uh, 
it was what it was. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a fun and interesting show. It really, really was. And it was great fun to kind of uh, look back on it. Now, I must admit, you know, I remember watching it live at the time. I think I had Sky Sports or Sky Movies, wherever it was shown live back in 1993. But uh, I haven't seen it back too many times since, to be honest with you, because it's, you know, that ending especially left a bit of a, a sour taste in my mouth. But I do enjoy watching it back. But before we kind of say goodbye, I just want to hit you with a few kind of interesting facts regarding WrestleMania 9. And some you may or may not know, but. Um, one interesting fact is that Hulk Hogan, his tag title match in the middle of the show against Money Inc. when he teamed with Brutus Beefcake, of course, that made Hogan the first wrestler in WWF history to compete for the WWF title, the Intercontinental title and the tag team titles at WrestleMania. It's the first ever kind of wrestler to uh, achieve a hat trick of, of title matches um, in WrestleMania history. And the second wrestler to achieve that hat trick on the same show, amazingly, was Bret Hart, um, because uh, then he he appeared at WrestleMania defending the WWF uh, Championship. He was previously an Intercontinental Champion, um, and uh, which he defended at WrestleMania 8, and previously a Tag Team Champion, which he defended on, on an earlier uh, a WrestleMania. So an interesting fact there. One other final fact I'm going to leave you with is that Bret Hart didn't know uh, that he was going to be dropping the title until just 24 hours before the show itself. And I've got a, a, an inkling of a suspicion that Hogan knew that he was walking out of Las Vegas with the championship before Brett knew he was going to drop it to Yoko. Uh, but uh, give us your kind of overriding memories, your overriding takeaways of WrestleMania 9 that will kind of live with you, uh, you know, as a wrestling fan, uh, having seen it back this week for this review then, Mike. Yeah, so I think... A big part of it that really stands out from my childhood was really the pageantry of it. The fact that it was in the Caesars Palace car park, you know, the, all the, the Roman theme and everything. It was a toga party. The bits that really stand out to me and, you know, stand out in my memory were things like the um, there's some images that you see over and over again. One iconic image is Shawn Michaels standing outside with wind blowing through his hair. It's a classic shot of Sean in his black gear with uh, with Luna, Luna Vachon next. Yeah. yeah, and then you've got the, um, you know, there's a few other iconic pictures that you see over and over again. Yoko dominating breath, the salt getting thrown in his face. Um, you know, there were just some, there were some great standout moments that are real, real classics. You know, Doink, the pageantry of Doink and all that whole storyline. All them bits stand out more than any of the, uh, other bits in that show for me so it's more about the uh the pageantry of the show and also uh one interesting fact it was the first time jr used slobber knocker ah. <laughs> he mentioned slobber knocker at one point in the show <laughs> yeah so, well uh, uh, yeah he, he coined a bit of a bit of a living off of that uh, off of that phrase. Let's be honest. But I mean, for me, highlights for me definitely enjoyed the Steiners versus the Head Shrinkers. That that was a pretty awesome match that kind of uh, lives up to today's standards as far as I'm concerned. It was really really stiff, hard hitting, hard to watch at times, especially at a bump over the top rope. Uh, really enjoyed Shawn Michaels' entrance with Luna as well. Thought Luna looked fantastic. Uh, the Undertaker's entrance with the uh, with with the, the the Vulture or whatever it was, that Bird of Prey. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I think the, the biggest uh, kind of memory for me uh, even before watching it back this week was Bobby the Brain Heenan's entrance uh, going backwards on the camel I mean, it, it makes me chuckle every time I see it and uh, you know I, I kind of watched uh, WrestleMania 9 back in chunks so I was kind of watching a bit yesterday morning, a bit yesterday afternoon, a bit more this morning uh, but I always kind of started off my viewing by watching the opening sequence, the entrances of Matchy Man and Bobby Heenan before I skipped to where I was at uh, previously and uh, that bit with Bobby Heenan just makes me laugh and uh, yes but um, there we go Mike it was wonderful to kind of recap and uh, relive WrestleMania 9 with you, my friend. It was so much fun and so many kind of memories. Now, hopefully the listeners will get a bit of a, a nostalgic feeling when they hear back, uh, you know, all of our uh, kind of fun recollections of what went down WrestleMania 9. But uh, before we say goodbye to you, do you have any uh, social media uh, handles, any, any Twitter, any Instagram, any Facebook where my listeners can reach out to you, say hi, get in touch and find out more about uh, Mike Angus? Yeah, of course. So I'm uh, Mike Mad Dog Angus on Facebook, so you can check me out on that. We've also got the uh, TNT Extreme Wrestling page, so make sure you check that out as well. TNT up in Liverpool. Um, we will have shows upcoming later on in the year, so make sure you check that out and get along. And then I've also got my Instagram, which is uh, the Mad Dog Mike Angus as well, so check me out on Instagram. All my classic wrestling pictures are on there as well from back in the day. So uh, 
pics with all the gang, you know, just put uh, Billy Gunn went up this week and there's uh, there's pictures with loads of the guys from back in the day, you know, uh, Shawn Michaels, Tatanka, the Steiners, you know, uh, all all the old gang. And, you know, I loved all my classic wrestling and I'm uh, and I'm still involved now, still a big fan. So, um, yeah, so make sure you um, you check me out. I'll have a Twitter upcoming this week. That's uh, that's the new thing. I've uh, managed to avoid Twitter for years, but people just tell me you've got to get a Twitter now. So yeah, <laughs> my Twitter will be set up while I'm in lockdown. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. That's coming up soon. And uh, yeah, John, it was great to speak to you, mate. And um, keep doing what you're doing. You do a great job. And uh, looking forward to hearing about other people's opinions of WrestleMania and what they thought. It's one that uh, really stands out in the memory for me as a rare, uh, you know, fond memories from my childhood. And uh, I hope everyone gets that from uh, from listening to this today. And uh, if you ever need me to review any other shows or check them out with you, um, just let me know and I'll uh, make sure to give them a watch and let you know my opinions on them. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll tell you what, Mike, would love to get you back on the show to do a, a proper interview with you and kind of talk to you more in depth about your wrestling fandom and your career as a ring announcer. So we'll have to arrange that sometime soon. But uh, listen, thank you so much for being on the Wrestling With John's podcast. You've been a, a great guest. It's been so much fun talking to you about WrestleMania 9 and uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you all again soon. And all the, uh, the the links to your Instagram and Facebook, they'll be attached to the description of this podcast. So uh, if you're listening to this, just click into the description and start clicking on those social media links uh, to uh, catch up with the mad dog and uh, find out what he's up to but uh, please keep it tuned to the wrestling with podcast uh, for all of your weekly updates uh, not so much wrestling to update you on but we will be doing uh, uh, quite a few uh, podcasts around wrestlemania season and recapping you on all the action there and please don't forget to spread the word tell your friends tell your family and don't forget to subscribe to the wrestling with john's podcast and uh, don't forget to uh, yeah hit that uh, click on that sub- subscribe button so you don't miss out on a single episode uh, a lot small from the wrestling with john's uh, podcast this is the uh, the first of five podcasts over five days from uh, the wrestling with john's podcast so uh, keep it tuned keep tuning into the wrestling with john's podcast and i uh, hope you all have a great week and we'll catch up with you all again soon thanks for listening